Okay, well, good morning. Talking about parenting, continuing our conversation. Last time we were together, we were discussing the, uh, the, the fact that you need to know who is against your family, your opponents, as a parent. It's very difficult to raise your children, to parent your children if you don't know who's trying to destroy your children and your family. If you think that everyone is your friend, then you are naive and you're in for a uh, rude awakening when these opponents who act like your friends are actually destroying your family. By the way, these opponents are found everywhere. They're not just found, uh, you know, in the world, whatever you want to define that as. They're found, they're found in your family. There are opponents who are blood relatives to you. An opponent we described last week is anyone who is against God's will, God's plan, God's truth, God's morals. That's an opponent. Uh, we are related to opponents. We, we go to church with opponents. Just because someone goes to church does not mean they are on task with following God. When I was younger, my parents had a lot of pushback on how they raised us as kids. They had a few rules. Uh, there were certain things that didn't apply back then, back in the 80s and 90s that apply today, but some things did like dating. And my parents said, you just can't date. There's no point to it when you're young. Uh, you're not going to be marrying this girl in middle school. You're, you know, very unlikely going to be continuing this relationship. So uh, just no dating. You know, they got the most pushback from people who went to church and attended our Christian school. In fact, so much so, people were literally telling us as kids that our parents, telling me, telling my siblings, our parents were way too strict, didn't know what they were doing, and we don't need to listen to them. These are people who go to church. These are adults, adults who went to church with my family. These are adults who taught at the Christian school. <laughs> they were opponents, all right? So do not be of the mindset that just because someone smiles to you and attends the same church, Marion Hills even, that they are friends. You need to do your research. So know your opponents, know your friends, and then be careful that your opponents do not become your friends and be careful that the opponents of God do not become friends to your children. That was the last point that we made last week. The impact of your friends is greater than the impact of opponents, and the greatest danger is when the opponents of God become your friends, you embrace them, you bring them into your family, that is when you see danger. I think that a great story to illustrate that biblically is a story of Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham, his, uh, Abraham's sister's son, Lot. Lot and Abraham were great friends. And we find that Lot seemed to be doing very well when he surrounded himself with friends of God. So much so, Lot was blessed beyond his imagination. Lot and Abraham were so blessed by God that they literally had to part ways because the pasture, which was quite large, could not contain both of their stuff. So Lot, unfortunately, didn't find another friend of God Lot found the opponents of God, and Lot embraced and brought into his family the opponents of God. And then we fast forward some years, and what do we find? We find that Lot's wife is completely running from God. We find that Lot's daughters have been married to ungodly men, and unfortunately, Lot not only loses his wife, you know the real tragedy in my opinion, Lot left behind daughters, son-in-laws, and grandchildren who were killed that day because Lot wasn't wise enough to embrace friends of God, to surround himself with friends of God. 
What was Lot doing in Sodom and Gomorrah? We can only guess. We can assume there's very little, little evidence, scriptural text to give us exactly what's going on. But it seems that as Lot was sitting at the gate, that is where the officials would sit, the political people, those who had some type of rank. It seems that Lot was trying to move up politically in this massive twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was looking to make a name for himself. Look, the guy was already rich. He came into Sodom and Gomorrah rich, but it wasn't enough for him to have things. He wanted popularity. He wanted status. And so Lot sacrificed his family, embraced the opponents of God for status. And in the end, all he was left with was two daughters, which you know the story, ended up raping Lot when he was drunk. And that was what Lot had to live with the rest of his life because he embraced the opponent's of God. People think that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a story of God's judgment on homosexuality. I don't believe that. I believe there was homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that, but it was, there was a whole lot of crazy things going on. That was not, in my opinion, the reason God was destroying them. That was just one of many immoralities, many issues, and uh, Lot not just lived among them, Lot embraced them. Lot didn't try to evangelize them. Lot tried to join them. And his family suffered the most. Um, when God had told Abraham to leave uh, his family back, you mean in his hometown when God said leave? So he brought Lot, I believe, because he loved Lot. I imagine, we don't know, I imagine there was other people uh, back in Abraham's hometown that loved God. Abraham heard about God from someone. And so Lot had a better chance of, of embracing the friends of God back home than he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what was a good intention? Oh, I'm going to leave home and follow Abraham because he's a good man, loves me, will take care of me. Started off well. Uh, Lot, I think, got money and pride and popularity as he got older. Uh, took over his, his logic, his wisdom. Yeah, and he paid for it. His family paid for it. All right, so today we're going to be talking about creating a team. This is so very important. I think is an easy transition from the idea, if you know your friends, if you know your opponents, then create a team. This is something that many, many parents don't do purposefully. All right, so if you're creating a team, I'm a basketball coach. I am constantly looking at people. When I see, when I see teenagers, I see them in the view of basketball players. I'm constantly asking girls that are tall, why don't you play basketball? I'm asking kids that are out playing basketball, shooting hoops, why don't you play basketball? Like, especially during basketball season, I filter everyone through the idea of, why don't you play basketball if they're, if they're of age? You know, your family would be a lot better off if you filtered everyone through, hey, why don't you join my team? Let's, let's team up together. In what? In, in this journey of life, as we serve God, as we raise our children, let's team up. But look, it's not enough just to put together a team, because you got a bunch of people on the court, you got a bunch of people on the team, and they're no good. You're going to lose your games. And raising children is not a game you want to lose. And so that is, by the way, that is what I have been doing since my first child. I have been purposefully examining the places I go, the people that I meet, and I haven't gone to them and said, will you be on the team? But essentially, by joining that church, I, I've created a team. By joining that school, I've created a team. By putting my kids on a team, I've created a team. I am constantly filtering the people that my children come into contact with through the idea of, do I want them on my team of raising my children? That's how I think of people. And if I don't, then, you know, or maybe they don't, maybe they're not interested, 
they're at, a, they're at a point in their life where it's not going to work. Well, that's great. We can still love each other. We can still serve God together. But the ones that are going to be having access to my children are ones that are on my team. Now, I think a great example of that is Christ. Remember, God sees the world as his children, right? For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. We're told of three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. It's obvious that God refers to the world not just as his creation, but as a family. Many of them are lost to him, and he wants to regain them. He wants to bring that sheep back into the fold. I can say back into. He wants to bring the sheep into the fold. It's a lost sheep, right? It never was. Uh, the unsaved were never saved to begin with. But God sees the world as a lost family, and God is trying to gain them back into, into his fold. And so what does he do? He sends Christ down to earth to represent him, because we don't get to God the Father throughout, without Christ the Son. And then Christ's goal was to what? Pay for our sins, atone for our sins, and conquer death. But outside of that, once that was done, that wasn't the end. That was just the beginning. After that, the goal of Christ was to set up the church for success. What success? Of training the world. He gives the church that that obligation. He says, go into the world, preach the gospel, teach all nations, baptize the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, train the world, bring them to God, and train them. So what did Christ, God the Son, do while he was on earth to see that done successfully? What did Christ do so that the training and the, the repentance and the bringing to God was done successfully? What did Christ do? He created a team of 12 guys. There were others who followed Christ, I mean, because it's Christ, but he invested in 12 people. Why? He's creating a team for the purpose of turning the world upside down, for the purpose of training while he's gone, for the purpose of bringing into the fold of God. That's what I see Christ doing. He didn't go at it alone. Even God himself, who is omniscient, omnipresent, chose, not because he had to, he wanted to, I think, to set a pattern for us on how it ought to look, chose to work with others. It is a dangerous thing to embrace everyone and everything as your team and to bring in everyone and everything into your family to raise your children with you. That is a dangerous thing. They will destroy you. They will destroy your family. Look, if they are an opponent of God, then they are going to indirectly or directly, consciously or subconsciously, if they are an opponent of God, they are not going to influence your children towards God. It's not going to happen. How could they? They're an opponent of God. They are going to influence your children away from God to some degree. If they are a friend of your family or child, that influence is more severe. So, there is a danger in just allowing everyone and anyone to influence your children. But you know what? There's also a danger of allowing no one to influence your children. That also is dangerous. There is a danger of going at it alone, and I'll tell you why. If your voice is the only one your child hears, at some point, your child will say, why are you the only one telling me this? You're probably lying to me. It, it is very likely, if you are the only one in your child's life, a couple of things are probably going to happen. One, rebellion. That is a very likely possibility right there. If your child hears no one else confirming what you're saying, when they do eventually leave your authority and everyone else is saying the opposite of what only you said, you're the only one that said it, they're going to say, okay, everyone else and mom, everyone else and dad, you know, what do you think your children are going to do? Most, history has proven this, most children say, I'm going with everyone else. 
The other danger is a child who's not has does not have a, a rebellious heart. They want to believe you. They they want to uh, believe that you, your your husband, your wife, they you know what you're talking about. They get in the world, and everyone else is saying something different, but they haven't been given multiple point of views on that truth. They've only been given yours. They're not fully prepared for the attacks they're going to get. And it's not that they're going to embrace the world. It's not that they're running from the truth you've given them, but they're not prepared for the lies of the world because they've only had one point of view of that truth, and that is yours. Look, you can tell them a truth. I can tell them the truth. It can be the same truth from two different views because I'm not you and you're not me. There is value to that. When a child says, oh, that's what my mom said, not the same way, but she said that. Oh, that's what my dad said. You know, he said it in a different way, but he said the same thing. Now your child is hearing it from different views, seeing different sides, because truth isn't 2D. It's not flat. It's 3D. Like, there's different sides to that truth, but it's the same truth. And so the more people that can give the sides of that truth and kind of flesh out and fill out that truth for your child, and the more people that can confirm that, no, you're not crazy, and you do know what you're talking about. And there are people in the world who agree with you. The more people your child is exposed to like that, the more likely your child will not fall apart when they come into the world. The world of disagreement. The world of opponents. So Christ himself chose a team. Now, of course, we know one of them was a devil, but that was purposeful. Christ chose Judas for the purpose of accomplishing his sacrifice on the cross. But the other 11, and eventually Paul, replacing Judas, back to 12 again, he chose a team to train, educate, and bring his children, the world, to God the Father. Why would we do any less? Get a team together. And when you meet people, filter them through this question. Is this person, is this family good for my children? Think like a coach. Every time you see someone, think, I've got a team. Would they be good on my team? Would they be good for my children? Are these people friends of God or opponents of God? And if they're opponents of God, I can love them, and I will use them to show my children how to love opponents of God. I'm not going to, like, anathema, my child can't talk to anyone like that. No. you got to expose your children to, these, to, to people who, who don't love God and show your child how to interact with people like that. But do not bring them onto your team. Do not allow them to influence your child. Now, there are starters on a team. There are bench warmers. And when the starter's not there, you call on the bench warmer. In basketball, there's five starting players, which are supposed to be your best, brightest, most talented, have the most knowledge. The starters have the most playtime, the most game time. You lose games when your bench, who doesn't know as much, is put excessively on the court, they're going to lose the game for you. Now, sometimes as a coach, when we're already losing, I'll give my bench experience so that they're not always the bench. But if I want to win, I'm playing my starters. <laughs> Parents... Who are your starters? Who are the ones that have the most exposure to your children? Who are the ones that have the most playtime, the most game time? Christ chose 11. I get, again, 12. We're going to eliminate Judas now because he was not chosen for the same reason. Christ chose 11 and then Paul. And look at the men that he chose. First of all, he shaped them to be starters. But he shaped men who could be shaped. He chose men who could be shaped. He didn't choose men who would refuse to follow. In fact, there were some that came to Christ and said, let me be a starter. Let me follow you. 
And Christ looked at the rich man and said, sell everything you have and follow me. And the rich man said, oh, never mind. There are some who wanted to be a starter. And Christ put him on the spot and said, are you really ready for this? <laughs> there was another one who said, let me be on the team. Let me play. I want to be a start for you, Christ. I want to be a starter. And Christ said, really? Well, you got a dad back there. You sure you really want to start for me? Because being a starter on this team requires sacrifice. Oh, you know what? Never mind. I'm not willing to sacrifice my time with my dad yet. He's not dead yet. So when he's dead, then I'll sacrifice it. It's not sacrifice if the man's dead. <laughs> so Christ basically says, so you're not willing to sacrifice. You want to start, but you don't want to make the sacrifices to start. Well, not going to happen. You get where I'm going at? We as parents often allow people to be starters on our team, to have a lot of influence uh, to our children and our family that aren't starters. They're not willing to make the sacrifices for your family. They want your family to make sacrifices for them. If you've ever coached, the worst players to work with are the ones who think the team is there for them, who think the coach is there for them, and they want the team to make sacrifices for them. They want the coach to make sacrifices for them. That's not how a team works. No, every individual makes sacrifices for the team. That's how it goes. And so do you have people in your life that understand their position You are not supposed to be making sacrifices for them. Your children don't make sacrifices for them. They make it for you. Now, I'm going to tread some territory that's a little uncomfortable. The ones who can be the greatest help and the greatest hindrance, I'm going to say it, are usually grandparents. Grandparents. And I'll tell you why. Because we automatically assume that grandparents should be starters. We assume that. I'm not saying it can't be true. It can be true. But grandparents who think that the child's job is to sacrifice for them should not be starters. They should be bench, on the bench. You can use them occasionally, pull them out occasionally, expose them to the game, let the, you know, let the kids you know, have exposure to the grandparents. But you want starters who are there to sacrifice for your kids. And not every grandparent, due to health, emotions, trauma, past experience, jobs, whatever, they're not ready to be starters for your family. You don't eliminate them completely. As long as they are friends of God and not opponents, then they should have some exposure. But look, I would not be putting my children under authority, even of those who are friends of God, who think that it's my child's job to sacrifice for them. My children aren't old enough to do that. <laughs> at the level that an adult would expect. Yeah, yeah, some sacrifices, I get it. Yeah, you know, you got you to clean up after you eat, that kind of thing. All right, I, fair enough. But I want people in my kids' lives who are already making sacrifices for my children, those are the ones I want to be starters. And I'll tell you what, Mid-State Christian Academy, we got teachers. That is, they are here. They are sacrificing. Our teachers don't make enough money to be here for any other reason than that they're sacrificing. And that is why, as a principal, I am completely happy with my kids having overexposure to any of the teachers here, the staff here, because they are sacrificing for my kids. And whatever sacrifices they ask of my children is for the benefit of my children so my children can grow up and be stronger and, and self-sufficient and responsible for the right reason. So, do you even have a team? Looking around right now, there's not many in this room, but I'm curious, those in this room, if I was to ask you, put on paper, aside from your spouse, can't include your spouse, five people that you've teamed up with to raise your children, to influence your children, would you be able to put down five? Three? Two? One? Is there one person outside of your marriage that you really would say, I've teamed up with this person to raise my kids? Maybe it's time. 
So it's time to start getting together a team. Because if you go at it alone, you are more likely to fail. And your kids are more likely to walk away from what they've only heard of you. Let me give you some ideas, by the way. Our church provides players ready to go. Pastor Ethan, youth pastor, ready to go. Include him in your team if you have a teenager. His wife, Caitlin Amasula, ready to go. Ready to be traded to your family as a team player. We provide people for you like Pastor John and his wife, Emily. So take advantage of the people at Meriden Hills who are basically here as a ministry to be on your team. They want to be on your team. They're begging to be on your team. They are sacrificing financially to work here to be on the team of your family. It would be so easy for you to create a team of two to three immediately if you just take advantage of the workers we've already got working with the age groups of your children. Be involved in what they are doing. Involve your kids in what they are doing. Involve them in what your kids are doing. I've gone to Pastor Ethan over the years and said, hey, uh, our team is playing. It'd be great if you could come watch a game. I don't do it every time. He's busy. But I try to involve him in what the kids are doing. And he'll, he'll usually come to one or two games and come watch our kids. My kid, Kinsey, other people's kids do that. Maybe your kids don't go to Mid-State. Go to Pastor Ethan and say, hey, it'd be really, it would mean the world to my child if you could just come to one game in the season and watch them play and involve them. Bring them into your family's team. If your child's elementary, go to Pastor John and say, hey, we got season coming up. It'd be great, John, Pastor John, if you could just go to one game and show my child that you care and start bringing them in, roping them into your team. It won't take much effort. The people here want to be on your team. The leaders, the spiritual leaders, want to be on your team. Use them. Create a team. But it doesn't have to be just people at this church. There are other people in the world who love God. I hope you know some of them. Start including them. So create your team like Christ did. Christ spent three years creating a team. He didn't waste his time. But, you know, Christ didn't just create a team. He created a plan. During his three years on earth, he talked about his plan often. He didn't just have it up here. He said it. Now, unfortunately, the apostles often didn't get the plan. He would say the plan, I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to take, take over. And the apostles are like, huh, what? What are you saying? That doesn't make sense. And, and you know, we're not going to let you die. and You can't leave us. And that's when Christ said, get thee behind me, uh, Satan, to Peter. Because he said the plan, but the apostles didn't want to follow the plan. But Christ didn't let that deter him. He kept saying it, and he did it. And eventually, the apostles said, oh, that's the plan. <laughs> and eventually, with God's plan, the world was turned upside down. All right, parents, what is your plan for your child? Do you have one? I've got a, I've got a plan for my child. If you were to ask me, I'll tell you right now. My plan for my children is that by 18, my children would be able to independently serve God in whatever capacity he chooses, independently from me. That's my plan. That by 18, I will have prepared my children to step out and say, now I'm going to serve God with my parents, outside of my parents, away from my parents, whatever way God asks. I'm not saying they have to leave Connecticut. If God has them stay here, then that's up to God. I'm not going to keep them here. If God sends them off, that's up to God. I'm not going to keep them here. 
I will prepare them for whatever God asks of them so they can do it outside of my authority. That is my plan. My plan doesn't get much more specific than that because I don't want to be so specific in my plan for my children that I hinder God's plan. I've known some parents who say, oh, yeah, my plan for my children, yeah, they're going to play baseball in college, and then they're going to go pro. <laughs> Uh, oh, my, my plan for my child? Sure, yeah, they're going to get a scholarship to this specific college. Like, that's my plan for my child. Academic scholarship, fine arts scholarship, athletic scholarship. They're going to get a scholarship. They're going to go to this college. They're going to get this career, and then they're going to live here, wherever here is, there or here. That's my plan. They basically planned out their kid's future. Now you are outplanning God. That's a problem. You don't want to outplan God. Remember, my plan, very basic. My plan is that they are ready, basically, and prepared to follow God's plan. That's my plan, to prepare them to follow God's plan. And I'm not God. And so it is not my job to know what that will be. I know what my job is now. My job is to push them to God. That's my job, and I will do that job. And I will surround my family and my kids with people who will do that job, push my children to God. And then 18... I am hopeful that my plan will come to fruition and my children will run to God. All five of my children, I remember helping them walk. And they couldn't walk, so you'd pick them up. It's more of like, you, you know, under their arms, you're kind of dragging their feet, and they're like doing this on their toes, but you're more dragging, you know, not by their arms, under their, under their arms safely than walking. And then eventually... They kind of stumble, right? And then you're like, you know, they one leg, and then they're like doing this, but they're still really holding on to you, right? You let go of them, they're going to crash down to the ground. And then there comes an age where they don't crash to the ground. You, they do this, and you kind of let go, and then they, they don't crash. They just kind of sit. They still didn't. They weren't successful, but they sit, right? Remember that age, some of you? Long time for some of us, right? But we can think back that far, and they just sit down. And so you recognize, okay, I can let go of them more often now. Because, you know, you let go of them at four months, man, they're going to nosedive it, right? You let go of them at 11 months, you know, some will be walking at 11 months. Some do. Most, you know, they're going to, and then just sit. So you're not concerned about their safety. We as parents need to think of our kids the same way spiritually. That when they're younger, you hold them, don't let go, because they will face plant. <laughs> it will be hurtful to them. But at some point, and this is going to be in their teen years, you need to let go of them and see how far can you go. They're not going to face plant. They're going to more sit. They might sit hard, hit their little rump a little hard, but whatever. It's not going to kill them. And then you pick them back up and you go again. But at some point, do you remember that time when you're holding your child and your spouse is the other way on the other side of the room and you let go and, and no one touched them and they did this and, and like everyone's cheering, oh, come on, let's go. And you maybe had keys or something to, you know, attract them to the other side. And so they get to the other side and everyone was so thrilled because your child walked without assistance. It didn't look very pretty. It didn't have to. The fact that they did it was enough. At 18, that's what it's going to look like. It's not going to be pretty. Your kids are going to be walking away like, how do I do my laundry? How do I cook for myself? You know, well, what church do I go to? And it's not going to look pretty. And you're like, oh, come on, seriously. Am I like a horrible parent? Like, they don't know these things? Look, at least they are surviving and they are walking. It's not going to look pretty for most 18-year-olds. But if you do your job right, they'll get through it. And then, you know what will happen? The more they walk, then they'll be running. 21, 22, they'll be running. Here's the thing. If they're walking, you know what can hinder them? If they're able to walk and you keep picking them up and you keep trying to help them, you're not helping them walk. Their muscles need to grow, right? 
And so you let them, now that they know how to walk, you just step back and let nature take its course. (laughs) All right. Once you've had a plan and your plan needs to be basic, stop making it so extreme. Stop out planning God. Basic planning. Once you've achieved your plan of when they're 18 or whatever age that is that they leave the house, my plan has been fulfilled by they are now walking to God. May not be running, walking to God. You got to let go and let the supernatural God take over. As long as they're walking in the right direction, doesn't matter if they're stumbling, doesn't matter if they fall on their rump a little bit, as long as they're going in the right direction, you keep cheering them on. And stop getting in the way of God. Stop trying to lift them up and drag them across the floor. Let their muscles get stronger. And eventually they'll be running. And if they've been going in the right direction, they'll be running to God. But parents, do you have a plan? Because I've been working with families for 20 years now. In my experience, and it is limited experience. It's not like I survey thousands of families. In my experience, parents usually don't have a plan. Their plan is survival. I just want to get through that day. That's not a plan. They don't have a plan for their kids. And if they do, in my experience, it's overplanned. They've planned out the kid's entire future, like down to who they're going to marry and where they're going to live and, and how they're going to live, you know, financially, how they'll be set up, all these things. You've overplanned. It is not your job to be God to your children. It is your job to show them God at a young age and to push them towards God at, a younger, at an older age and to let them run to God as adults. That's your plan. Make that your plan. And then stop including people who have different plans for your child. People whose plans is to run to money, not to God. The love of money being the root of all evil. They're literally destroying your child. Whose plan is to run to uh, the cares of this world, which the parable of the sower and the seed tells us uh, chokes out the ability to have fruit for God. And they're literally encouraging your child to run to what will choke them spiritually. If it doesn't fall in line with your plan, don't do it. And if the people who have exposure to your kids aren't part of the plan, stop letting them have exposure to your kids. And if the friends your children have chosen are following a different plan, maybe you need to limit that exposure. I'm not saying your kids can't know these people. They got to, again, that could be part of your training. Um, controlled exposure to other kids and other people who are running from God. My kids have that here at Midstate because not all the kids at Midstate are saved. Not all the kids at Midstate are following God's plan. My kids have exposure to them. It's controlled exposure. The kids at this school aren't in charge. They're not the ones teaching the lessons. They're not the ones giving the direction. They're the ones doing their own thing, and my kids get to see how that works out for them. They're given life lessons by someone else's bad choices, and we talk about those. All right, controlled exposure. And by the way, the older your child will get, the more controlled exposure you should give them. And then once they're older teenagers, it does come eventually to uncontrolled exposure. There's just some things you can't control because you're not going to control your child's life at 18, 19, 20. So you've got to start preparing them for that. But you don't start that at seven years old. The uncontrolled exposure does not start at seven. At what age? It's going to depend on the child. It's not so much an age as it is a preparation. You don't go to the next step until the child has been prepared from the first step. So the, first of all, no exposure 
like my little children, my four-year-old Chloe, like I'm not exposing her to any kind of ungodliness at all. She does not need that. There's no benefit. My job for Chloe is to trust her parents and to show basic kindness and compassion and obedience. That's, that's like that first level, okay? Once that, then she will get to a very controlled atmosphere where I'm not going to put her like in a daycare where the kids are, you know, swearing at five years old and kicking each other and biting each other. She wouldn't put, be put in that kind of daycare. It's going to be a very controlled atmosphere at that level. But I got to be honest with you, my middle schoolers, Kinsey and Abby, they're around kids who swear at mid-state. I, we deal with it, but it happens. And so the, the exposure will increase as your children get over, older, and the control decreases. But don't let it go too fast. Have a plan. And make sure your plan is being accomplished. And there's not an imbalance of exposure versus control. Otherwise, the imbalance will cause your child to fall pretty hard. And not all kids come back up from that. Okay. Create a team. Create a plan. Follow the example of Christ because that's exactly what he did. He came to this earth, created a team, and he had a plan. He stuck to his plan, and his plan was fulfilled. Stick to your plan. Let's pray.